Thank you for taking the time to check out the Inside Myanmar podcast. If you like what you hear, we would be very grateful if you might consider rating, reviewing, and or sharing this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Inside Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if your feed is not in your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure it can be offered there. Welcome to this episode of Insight Myanmar Podcast. I'm here with the historian and author, Robert Lyman. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Joe. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So as a historian who's written extensively about World War II, particularly the Burma Theater, which is the book Among the Headhunters, which we're going to discuss today, we're eager to delve into your expertise. Uh, before we get into this particular book, could you provide us with some background on your interest in this specific aspect of the war and what motivated you to study and write extensively about the Burma theater of World War II? Okay, Joe. Well, very quickly for all your listeners, I began this um, exploration probably about 35 years ago. I was serving in the British Army and I was asked to undertake a course on I'd deliver a course on the Burma campaign for my soldiers, read Bill Slim's famous book, Defeat into Victory, and became hooked. And eventually, to cut a very long story short, ended up doing my PhD on Bill Slim. And I think I've spent, I've spent such a long time on the Burma campaign, I'm trying very hard to get away from it. But it draws me back. Uh, it draws me back every time because it's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's an area or part of the war that very few people really know much about. But one of the things that's really got me interested in is the role of the hill tribes. And um, many years ago, 2004, I was enjoyed, invited to join the start of a charity called the Kahima Educational Trust, which introduced me to the people of Nagaland for the first time. Uh, and the reason why all this is connected is because the Naga people gave really quite extraordinary, even unconditional support to the British and Indian soldiers fighting the Japanese at Imphal and Kahima in 1944, that the trust was set up by veterans of the British Army to repay a debt of gratitude to the Nagas. So it was through the Kahima Educational Trust that I came across this very remote um, Naga village on the right on the border of uh, Burma and India. In fact, the border between the two countries runs right through the village. It's quite an extraordinary story. And, um, and I became completely fascinated by 
a very different dimension to the British side of the story, which, of course, is Bill Slim's conquest of Burma, which is the hump, which was largely an American, extraordinary American effort to replace the road that ran from Rangoon through to Mandalay, Lashio and Chongqing, which the Japanese, of course, had captured in 1942. So with quite extraordinary American, I mean, only the Americans could have done this. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. It really was quite an extraordinary piece of um, thinking that went behind uh, behind it. I mean, in short, when the uh, the physical Burma Road was lost to the Japanese by May 1942, mm-hmm. uh, the American planners said, well, we don't really mind. Uh, we'll rebuild another road in due course uh, from the northern Brahmaputra Valley. But in the meantime, we'll supply uh, China, uh, essentially Chiang Kai-shek and his allies at Chongqing and in Yunnan province with all the fuel and ammunition and support they need by air. And your listeners may well have heard about the hump airlift, but it's extraordinary to relate that at the time it was probably one of the greatest logistical exercises ever undertaken in human history. And I'm not exaggerating here. It's, uh, mm, it's wow. really that the size of the hump airlift was was massive. And if I can summarize it, let me just put it in these terms. The hump airlift went on for about 900 days. It um, involved the transport of 650,000 tons. Now, that's an extraordinary number. So 650,000 tons of supplies from the upper Brahmaputra Valley in Assam to Yunnan. Um, and when you consider that the majority of the planes that we're using, they were using for transport for the C-47, the, the famous, um, uh, in British terms, the DC-3 Dakota, but American terms, the C-47. Um, as some, there were some C-46s as well, the commandos, but the main um, the main backbone of the ELF was the C-47. Its payload was two and a half tons. Hmm. So do them. There we are. Hmm. 900 days, 650,000 tons. Two and a half thousand ton payload for a C-47. We're talking about in the region of 240 or 50 C-47s in the air every single day, hmm. undertaking the um, the long journey, the seven hour journey uh, into Yunnan. And at the time, it really was extraordinary because these planes weren't didn't have um, uh, oxygen, automatic oxygen. Pilots would have to take. Uh, oxygen up with them because in order to cross the 17,000 foot mountains into China, they need to avoid the Japanese at a place called Michinar. They needed to cross over. And it's just, I mean, everything, whenever you look at the hump, it's just the most extraordinary story ever. Mm. And I I love it because Mm. it's such an an expression of American can do. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, something that we really struggled to find in the early years of the war. I think Britain recovered it towards the end. But gosh, it was there in spades in America. And uh, in my view, that's one of the reasons why the Allies won the war. This quite extraordinary. Yet we can deliver. We can solve Mm -hmm. these problems. Nothing's too big for us. The road's gone. Hey, we'll fly fly everything in by air. And they jolly Mm -hmm. well did. Uh, One of the, I mean, I love telling my students this. One of the extraordinary things about this is that in terms of the numbers of troops in what was Southeast Asia Command in by 1945, uh, commanded by Admiral Lord Louis Mountbatten, uh, in April 1945, there were 1.3 million men and women in Southeast Asia Command. Mm-hmm. And of that 1.3 million, about 55 or 56 percent of them were Indian. About 270,000 were American, and only a hundred thousand 
believe it or not, were Brits. Hmm. So in Britain, we have this view of uh, the war in the Far East being mm-hmm. a British war to eject the Japanese from Burma and, um, you know, well done us. The reality is there are nearly three times as many Americans in northeast India, Assam, and ultimately Burma than there were Brits. So uh, I, I always uh, remind my students that, you know, we, we only think it was a British campaign because we don't, don't actually know the facts. As soon as you start unraveling the layers mm-hmm. of the young and you realize actually uh, the American presence was quite extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and just re- some of the history I've read, some of the names that were there are interesting as well. You know, Steven Spielberg's father was a soldier and it was Steven Spielberg's father talking with his old friends in the Burma front that first exposed him the, to the idea of storytelling and storytelling in a context of war, which started, you know, his imagination and 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 early movies that were made. I believe Obama's grandfather also was there. There was there were well, you know, African I had absolutely I had absolutely no idea. That but, but to be honest, none of that surprises me. Hmm. Um, one of the things that does depress me is because is of course, you know, the, the war in the Pacific and um, the war in Europe takes everyone's imagination. Right. And this extraordinary story of an amazing multinational effort between yeah. Britain, America, India uh, free China, the Cantonese Chinese armies of Chiang Kai-shek, free Burmese uh, troops, and ultimately in 1945, the troops of Aung San's uh, Burma army itself, um, all joining together in a remarkable coalition effort to defeat the Japanese. And it's full of very, very rich stories that only a handful of, um, dare I say, I, I'm, I'm one myself, uh, history nerds actually know anything mm. about it. It's a great tragedy. And uh, right. I spend... A lot of my time banging the drum both in India and the United States when I'm across the pond, explaining to people that there's a huge chunk of quite extraordinary history that we are we are neglecting. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Steven Spielberg's father, Obama's father, I mean, that's I mean, none of that surprises me at all that the American effort was really fantastic. In fact, I've been reading a memoir recently um, by a British soldier who called Calcutta in 1943 an American city. Now, that mm. doesn't surprise me either, because, well, of course, America... Uh, American Lend-Lease Supplies, when Rangoon was cut off Mm -hmm. uh, in early 1942, were then diverted to uh, Calcutta, and they were transported, you know, 800 or 1,000 miles up the Brown Bruta Valley by railroad and um, sea, and through the river, rather, the Brown Bruta River, to the airfields in the northern uh, Assam region, Chabua and Dinjan, to fly over into China. I mean, that's just really an extraordinary thing. And uh, my friend Giles Milton, who's a, a writer and um, he's written a, a recent book on the Berlin Airlift, um, uh, revealed that actually the Berlin Airlift was only successful because the people who were able to design that quite extraordinary effort in Berlin in the late 1940s had cut their teeth on wow. the hump. Yeah. Wow. That's that, that's that's amazing. And I, I I've I've read other histories that have framed the fighting as kind of a precursor to the jungles of Vietnam that would happen in the war later. And to clarify about Obama's father, that was not his American side or grandfather, excuse me. That was his African side. Oh, because of course. there yes. were these Pan African regiments that were that were there. Yes. Yes. Well, when the African, I mean, it's another very interesting thing. There were ninety thousand African troops from both West and East Africa. Hmm. Uh, serving in um, in Burma, there was there were two West African divisions: a West Africa, the Gold Coast, um, now uh, Gambia, and uh, Ghana and Nigeria, and an East Africa, um, Northern Rhodesia, um, 
southern Rhodesia, as was um, Somaliland, believe it or not, and um, Tanganyika, and what is now, uh, I've missed something, out, and, and, and Kenya as well. So it's quite extraordinary. The King's African Rifles from the mm -hmm. east, and they, they formed a, a division and a half. They had the 11th East African Division, about 12, 15,000 men. They had two separate brigades fighting, doing some severe fighting in 1944, 45. And then the West Africans fighting incredibly well in Arakan, both through 45, 44 and 45 as well. And if I just give your listeners a real sense of what's going on here, because uh, we hear very little actually in the history books or in mm -hmm. popular conversation today about these feats of arms, the Africans, bear in mind, the same number of African troops fighting in Burma as, as were British, um, an extraordinary number. In Arakan, um, in 1944-45, an entire uh, West African division um, were moving or moved down a valley parallel to the coast called the Kaladin Valley to put pressure on the Japanese who were occupying the coast. So the Japanese, the, the Africans were effectively moving behind them and ultimately forced the Japanese commander to, to uh, leave the town, the main town of Akyab and to uh, to evacuate the defences of the coast, which meant that when the amphibious landings went in in 1945, mm -hmm. they were unopposed. Mm -hmm. And that was an African division. And mm -hmm. that African division was on air supply. Many of those aircraft were American aircraft, air supply for nine months. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, it, I mean, I, 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 I amaze myself. I mean, really, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm surprised myself every time I come across these yeah. facts and figures and every time I prepare a lecture or do a little bit of work and it's quite extraordinary we've just got we've really the world has lost sight of the enormity of the effort that was undertaken that was launched rather to and undertaken to defeat the japanese uh, in burma and india and elsewhere it really was quite an extraordinary thing it does mm. really i mean there's so many angles to the story which is why i love going back mm. to it i love going back to the hump uh, nicknamed the pilot by the pilots the aluminum trail for all the aircraft yeah. that um, fell out of the sky uh, you know, it was, it was quite an extraordinary story from many, many perspectives, not least, as I've said, this really, really remarkable logistical effort mm -hmm. and this really remarkable coalition, joint national effort by a whole variety of nations to come together. America bought its engineering expertise. It rebuilt um, railways and expanded the capacity of the railways through its railway know-how help build airfields. I mean, the number of, air, there are about 200 extra additional airfields in Northeastern India built in 1943-44. 200 extra airfields. Oh, wow. I fly into Dimapur twice a year in Assam, and it was an American airfield built um, hmm. in 1942 to service this quite remarkable logistics hub that was building up at Dimapur to support the, um, the hump airlift and also the... Uh, Indian and British forces in Manipur. So there's no end to the stories, but the size and scale of everything yeah. is just so mind-boggling. Yeah. So your point, just flicking across to um, to Vietnam, yes, it was a really remarkable exercise in um, jungle bashing. And certainly the American effort, the Northern Combat Area Command, was a significant jungle bash through some really remote territory in the Hawking Valley, right up in the northeast of Burma crossing the mountains from India into Burma through territory where nobody lives because it's so so remote and difficult, um, through uh, an area populated by the Kachin tribe, large numbers of Kachins 
uh, were recruited and joined uh, American forces to, to fight the Japanese as scalps and as soldiers. Um, and then they launched the, 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 the famous attack um, in 1944 on Japanese-held Michinar, which is the most northerly Japanese town or Burmese town held by the Japanese during the war. Mm-hmm. And that was, of course, led by uh, General Vinegar J. Stilwell. So there's you know, some extraordinary stories. So, yes, ba- a lot of jungle bashing. But mm-hmm. the other really interesting thing for me, and this really does tally with uh, early American experience with the Montagnards in Vietnam, a lot of very significant um, uh, support by liaison with uh, local tribes. Right, because right. One of, the, one of the really significant features of this, of my book Among the Headhunters, but actually the whole Second World War in the Far mm-hmm. East, is that actually the hill tribes on the whole um, around Burma, the Burma periphery, um, supported the Allied war effort against the Japanese. And there's lots of reasons for it, and they're all very interesting. But, you know, the Nagas are are, are, are one case in point when you would imagine that perhaps some of the Nagas who I I describe in the book would have little interest in supporting the Allies against the Japanese. Actually, the reverse was the case. And um, the American experience in Northern Combat Area Command, way, way up there in the Northeast, was uh, was moot in this regard because of the Kachins, uh, the Karen people in the um, southeast of the country played a significant part in uprising or rising against the Japanese in 1945 and actually enabled Bill Slim to capture Rangoon uh, on time. You know, this is all because of the, the work of the Hill Tribes. Yeah. The Nagas at Kahima, one of the reasons I joined the Kahima Educational Trust in 2004 was the Nagas played such a significant role in helping mm-hmm. the British to um, to fight the Japanese that veterans set up this charity, uh, which I joined nearly 20 years ago. And uh, that that all that introduced me to uh, the detail of Naga life and the uh, mm-hmm. general and, of course, Panksha in particular. So it's uh, there is an enormous amount of space for academics, popular writers, people with general interests, uh, scho- scholars of all kinds and travellers, to actually investigate these mm-hmm. um, stories further. And there aren't enough of us. <laughs> there yeah. are very few people actually doing this sort of work. I love um, I love the headhunters actually because I was able to see all of humankind. When I, when I started investigating the loss of this aircraft, this American commando C-46, you know, all of life is in this story. Yeah. Uh, in the remote part of India and Burma, and uh, it was it's an exciting story. And when I first came across it, um, I don't want to preempt you, Joe, but uh, mm. you know, it, it just hooked me. Here's a story mm-hmm. yeah. of a whole bunch of different civilizations sure. um, bumping into each other. And, and, and let's see what happens. It's really extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, definitely. And that comes across in the writing and and definitely the uh, just referencing how the Americans were able to rely on their allies and in, in some of the ethnic minorities and um, regions in the hills in Myanmar. You know, it's a testament that outside of the U.S. Embassy in Yangon, you have a statue of a kitchen ranger uh, just showing the connection that was there. Um, one question I do have, this is something I've always wondered. And now that I, I have a private audience with you, I get to ask this to uh, a World War II historian that will be able to shine a light on this. You know, 
I've learned about the hump and the flying tigers. I've read about these. These are not so well known as you reference in the overall story of World War II. And indeed, the Burma Front has been called the Forgotten War or the Forgotten Front for just how little attention it's, it's received. And whenever I read about the the trials and tribulations of what the pilots are doing, I can't help but think of really one of the most famous writings that's ever come out of World War II, at least in, in, in terms of um, fiction, at least in America, is Joseph Heller's Catch-22 and yeah. the description of just the madness, kind of the exaggerated madness of the the danger and the risk and the chaos and the craziness of the pilots pilots flying. I think that was a Mediterranean um, somewhere that was around Mediterranean, there. But I, I get the parallel. Yes, definitely. Right. So my my question is just looking. You know, that's something that really Catch Twenty Two really captured uh, an American audience when it came out, and it continues. You know, a new TV series came out with Catch Twenty Two. Um, a few years ago, and it it just has captured an American um, sense of the craziness of not of, of not just wartime, but particularly the the um, what the pilots were going through in this kind of context. And this has the the um, the descriptions of what the pilots were going through is something that's become quite well known and understood in in yeah. general culture. I think you could say. Yeah. So yeah. I, I guess my question is, how would how would you compare what was going on in the hump and what the the flying tigers were doing with what's much more well known about and well talked about what Joseph Heller depicted, albeit knowing that he took some creative liberties and that was that was very intentional yeah. and wanting to show yeah. the inner landscape as well. But it definitely yeah. also showed the the dangers um, yeah. and the risks that the pilots were going through in that context as well. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a great question, and let me answer it by saying that I think um, what we have here is a dichotomy between the purposefulness of war and people's personal experience of actually playing out their role, whether that be a, um, in an aircraft or uh, as a pilot or flight engineer or you know, fighting on the ground as an infantryman. So uh, the, the, the point about uh, Haller, and Haller was talking about these flights from North Africa into Sicily and Italy, um, there was a very distinct purposefulness about what they were doing. They were undertaking a planned set of operations to defeat the enemy. And that's exactly the same as the hump. It was, it was an extraordinary effort. But if when, when people internalize their part in this war, you can feel, or when one does, I was a soldier once, and I, I certainly know this feeling, you suddenly become lost in the enormity of what's going on around you. And you get lost also, or maybe sometimes overcome by the chaos of war, what might appear to be the chaos of war. So there's this dichotomy between actually a purposeful venture, well-planned, pretty well-organized, but thrown together, but certainly working hump operation over the mountains into China. And then you've got the personal experiences and the craziness and the fear uh, and the upside-downness of life. You know, this, these are young men plucked out of America right across the length and breadth of America, stuck into aircraft, given in many cases a modicum of training, and all of a sudden they were flying seven-hour flights and C-46s and C-47s over two great uh, mountain ranges across the whole of northern Burma, which is swept by Japanese aircraft, uh, and casualties are high. The aluminum trail lost a lot of aircraft. And um, the, the randomness of your life in those circumstances is something that you have to deal with. Now, I tell you, most servicemen deal with the randomness, the potential randomness um, of the threat against them by saying it's going to happen to someone else. And I certainly did that as a young soldier. 
and uh, and we know that's the experience of people uh, in Europe during the bombing campaign. You know, with such a large number of um, aircraft shot down, in Britain about thirty thousand men were killed. Uh, more than that, thirty-five thousand were killed in the um, bombing campaign. So you 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 deal with that in a number of ways, and and Haller dealt with it by just turning the world upside down and, and and describing the craziness of everything and making it look and sound mad. And I think, you know, that's clearly um, a perspective. It's clearly a plot. I don't think Heller fully believed it, but it told an amazing mm-hmm. story of how you can get lost in the craziness of war. And I think that's certainly, if you asked any of the survivors of um, Flight 12420 on the 2nd of August, 1943, uh, the Heller question, Oh, the catch twenty two question. They would all put their thumbs up and say, "We all know what you're talking about. That, that this is complete." We, here we are, one right, day, right. of an aircraft flying across China, um, and all of a sudden, one of the air, one of the uh, engines starts stuttering, and we can hear a vibration in the aircraft, and mm-hmm. we look at each other, uh, and then within sort of half an hour, all but one of those people are on the ground, having jumped out uh, by parachute into territory they know nothing of. But that today, that is still the largest involuntary parachute of any aircraft oh. um, in in human history. It's quite extraordinary. N- nothing has come near it. Um, and I mean, it's very interesting. When I uh, was looking at this from a British perspective, I was quite struck that American aircraft actually had parachutes in them. Royal Air Force C-47s didn't even have parachutes for passengers. But if you think, you know, if you think of, um, you know, your Bill Stanton or... Uh, uh, Jack Davis or Eric Severard or Duncan Lee getting onto that aircraft and being given a parachute or told that there's a parachute under your seat, never having been told how to put it on, mm-hmm. never being told how to pull the ripcord mm-hmm. because these weren't uh, parachutes um, that opened by static line. You had to actually physically pull the parachute cord yourself. And, you know, if you're falling out of an aircraft at only three or 400 feet, you've got a second to do it. Everyone did it. Now, that's that. That's the Haller story. This is completely loopy. Who could yeah. ever imagine a plot as crazy as this? What's even crazier, Joa, is the fact that in that particular aircraft, you had people from right across the United States, um, and you had personal stories here that actually, in and of themselves, are mind-bendingly interesting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've often thought this when I've flown around the world. You know. What are people's stories? You know, think about all the other people on this plane. Line them all up. What are right. your stories? What are your personal stories? And this is still the great lure of the Second World War for me. Uh, you know, the war was fought by millions of people. Uh, each of those individuals um, had or you know had a degree of autonomy or agency, and they all have stories to tell. And mm. that's why you know, someone asked me the other day, you know, why are you still writing on the Second World War? And I thought about it and I, I, I answered with the, the response that there are still lots of stories. Yeah. And I don't think they'll ever end. It's quite and every single one of those stories gives a really unique perspective on on the chaos and the craziness and the, the seeming randomness. I say seeming, actually, a lot of it was pretty random. Um you know, life and death in war wartime can be pretty random. And um and I think Haller was trying to capture that that loopiness that you know it's out of control it's um it's bizarre there's nothing much we can do about it it's just um it's it's crazy it's chaotic yeah 
Mm, right. And before we get into the specific story that you tell in the book, let's just set one more question to set the context for our audience. Let's discuss this China, Burma, India, CBI theater during World War II. This was a region that played uh, a really significant role in the overall war effort. And perhaps you can inform the audience about you have the Japanese invasion, the subsequent British retreat that's described in the book. When this plane crash takes place, where are we specifically in the timeline of the conflict? What's happening on the ground in the shape of what the different um, the, the different troops and the different sides are doing at that moment? Yeah. Okay. So the the quick story is that the Japanese invaded Burma. They arrived in January 1940, uh, 1942, and they'd pushed the British defenders, very weak defenders, out of Burma by May. Uh, and in so doing, they had captured Rangoon and cut the Burma Road. Now, so that was uh, May 1942. This is over a year later, August 1943. Now, the um, hump airlift had been operating for many months now. The hump airlift began at the end of 1942. The Americans were able to get this aerial lifeline into Chiang Kai-shek's forces up and running really quickly. And what they were doing is they were flying fuel and ammunition and supplies into Yunnan province, uh, Chongqing, um, and Kunming, and they were flying back uh, in their aircraft, uh, Chinese soldiers, to be trained by British and American uh, soldiers in India, paid for, incidentally, by Britain, um, in order to be able to populate a new force of American and Chinese troops who would advance with Stilwell down the length of the new road, known today in, um, in India as the Stilwell Road, and us outside India is the Lido Road, a new road from Lido down to Michinar. So that process had begun. There was a lot of, um, you're right to say it was very, very significant politically, because why was America supplying such enormous amounts of equipment to China? Well, America had been doing this since before the war through mm -hmm. Lend-Lease. And in fact, the only reason really, when you boil everything down to it, the only reason why Japan invaded Burma in the first place was to capture, was to cut the Burma Road. They only managed to capture, or they managed to capture the rest of Burma because the British defences were so weak and they were able to push them out. They weren't expecting to, they, they were only expecting to capture Rangoon, um, but the early experience of battle gave them uh, confidence that if they just continued pushing, the British would be entirely ejected. And that tells us something actually about why the Japanese did so little in, in the years thereafter to defend uh, Burma and uh, to present it as a um, as a bastion in the the new empire they'd created. They did it. They did a very poor job of that. So here we are. We're we're towards the end of latter end of 1943. Um, Guadalcanal had been um, the Battle of Guadalcanal had begun at the end of the previous year, 1942. So we've got the start of the island hopping campaign that's been going on relentlessly in 1943, uh, some very big battles to come in 1944. But let's just hop back to China. Uh, America had supported China against the Japanese very significantly in terms of, you mentioned the Flying Tigers earlier, uh, and in terms of um, uh, Lend-Lease war materials. And this was to support the Chinese against a quite aggressive Japanese um, militarism, rampant militarism, that had actually begun in the 1930s. I happen to believe um, that you know, J um, J Japan had been building up its warlike efforts um, since the early 1920s, led not just by 
some um, by the politicians, but by Emperor Hirohito as well. I think the evidence is very clear in that regard. And um, China was the place where Japan was designing to make its fortune as an empire. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is that once they'd stepped up their efforts in 1937, they had moved into China and uh, created Manchukuo in 1931. Once they'd actually stepped up their efforts in 1937, they still couldn't make the headway they wanted. And um, this was a con constant irritation, not least of all because they blamed America for placing sanctions on Japan in terms of uh, sanctions on oil and, and some, some um, industrial stuffs like rubber and so on. Uh, so the Japanese very quickly, uh, because they were failing to achieve their strategic objectives in China, started mm -hmm. blaming the United States. And that in part fueled the, the war talk in Tokyo and led to the declaration of war and the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor on the 8th of December 1941 was simultaneous with the attack on Malaya, British Malaya. It all happened on the same day. It's a different date, the 7th of December. It's only that's because of the international dateline. But uh, the, the big question here is for America, if we don't support China, then, of course, those very large numbers of Japanese troops in China are going to be diverted to fight us in the Pacific. Yeah. So it's very, very important to keep the Japanese occupied in mm -hmm. China. To, uh, so the way to do that is to feed and fuel and arm the Chinese so that they can hold down the Japanese and also they can help in the recovery of Burma. And the recovery of Burma was only important to the Allies for the purposes of recovering the Burma Road from Rangoon. And once that was achieved, it was a very, very significant war aim. And I would I would argue, you know, we, we, we do have we, we have entirely forgotten the strategic dimension to this, because if you take China out of the war, you've got a very, very different dynamic now operating in the Pacific that you have to deal with very, very large numbers of Japanese infantry. Um, and you've also got the success of a Japanese empire. If the Japanese were successful in China. It meant that they had achieved their imperial ambitions and they would have you know, higher morale, you know, that they would have mm. a different perspective on the fight as it was because they were struggling to make any headway in China and they weren't able to redeploy those troops elsewhere. You know, it, it was much, much harder for them to do anything other than simply defend what they had. And that's really the story of 1943 after the failure of the last battleship forays, naval forays um, in the Pacific was a Japanese defense of their possessions and of the home islands. So that's that's why China was so incredibly important. And it's why the Humber airlift really should play a bigger part in our conception of the overall war. Mm, thank you for that. So with that context in mind, <clears throat> both of the specific missions happening in the area that we're talking about, as well as the overall CBI theater, let's get into the story that you tell. And you just briefly mentioned some of the names that were on this crew, but let's go into more detail. If you can share some of the more notable names that were part of the C-46 that went down. Well, it's quite an amazing story, actually, because on this plane flying into Chongqing were a number of uh, individuals going for um, military purposes. Uh, one of them was a chap called Captain Duncan C. Lee, uh, and he was uh, uh, an auditor. You know, he had a pretty lowly job uh, uh, in, in um, Southeast Asia Command or CBI. Uh, but actually, his, um, he was unknown to us at the time. 
he was a Soviet double agent. Mm -hmm. Really quite extraordinary that this man was on the aircraft. In addition, we had uh, one of the most prominent um, American journalists of the era, and certainly not a, um, a Morrow at the time, but in, in decades to come, he was to be, he was to be you know, the voice of America, Eric Severard, as a war correspondent. He also happened to be on the plane. We also had John Payton, Jack Davies, who was the political attaché to General Stilwell and, um, and a very significant individual in designing the uh, Stilwell's war plans and, uh, and executing them. Uh, and your, re your listeners rather will be interested to know of the really quite extraordinary gameplay, uh, political gameplay behind this entire story, because mm -hmm. Stilwell was representing a particular view of uh, how America might fight the Japanese by supporting the Chinese. Uh, and he was uh, being opposed both publicly and privately by Claude Chenot, who was essentially uh, arguing for an, a, a, um, a, a type of warfare dominated by aircraft. Claude Chenot, I'm afraid, was way out of time uh, in terms of his doctrine, because by this stage in the war, it had been demonstrated that um, by, through the Blitz and so on, that bombing aircraft were not going to do what he thought they might be able to do. He had this view that simply bombing Japan into submission would end the war. Well, yes and no, it depended what you were dropping on them. Uh, and the other real challenge to Claude Chenault's uh, arguments was that if soon, as soon as you started flying uh, B-29s out of um, China, you were going to uh, bring the wrath of the Japanese army down on you and they would advance against those airfields. And then that, in fact, was part of the story in 43-44. So uh, it's... Um, that's 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 his role. Davis, political attaché to, to Stillwell. We had uh, Bill Stanton, who was from the Board of Economic Warfare, um, another administrator, but a very interesting character. Um, and then a couple of officers from the Chinese army and then a whole bunch of soldiers who uh, had no idea uh, about all the machinations going on around them, uh, who were just doing their military duty. And. Um, uh, and. Um, and and doing as they were told. I mean, it's it, it's quite extraordinary actually that you you wouldn't have you wouldn't ever have um, thought about putting all of these people in the same <laughs> aircraft. Mm, uh, right. Uh, it, that that's that's the fun thing for me. If these were just ordinary soldiers, and I right. don't do that pejoratively, um, then I probably wouldn't have given this uh, the subject another um, another look but actually the fact is that eric severard very interesting guy fantastic mm -hmm. writer very good journalist was part of the crew um uh, is is really fascinating he left some very very interesting memoirs that i've been able to to use mm. and he he talked through the whole story of, of what happened so if it wasn't for eric we wouldn't have had really um the the angle into uh the story that we we had mm. but uh, John Payton, Jack Davis, he also left some um, uh, memoirs as well, not not as um, extensive, but the two of them together have given us, you know, enough to be able to uh, to tell a pretty good story about what happened. Mm, right. So they go down and they're <clears throat> after their plane falls. And we should also paint the context a bit more of the, the Flying Tigers and Chenault, uh, the hump. We, we talked about, uh, you talked about this action taking place as part of the theater, but I think the complexity and the controversy behind it hasn't really been fleshed out because this was 
um, whether or not this uh, this was definitely a, a very hard thing to do. It was a, it was a massive undertaking, but that doesn't get into the question of was it a good idea to actually uh, commit action in this way, and was it effective looking back historically with that perspective? That was this something that actually. Um, uh, supported the allied cause of the war. And there's a lot of controversy with this. And there's also a lot of ego with both the nationalist Chinese as well as the American Flying Tigers in terms of the belief in what they want to do. And they, I, I believe it was Stilwell and others that had very different ideas about the effectiveness of pursuing the uh, an airlift strategy through the hump. So um, can you flesh out a bit of the different opinions around the um, uh, the decision to 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 commit to this action and looking at it with the advantage of quite a bit of hindsight historically, how effective actually was this? It was a massive undertaking, and it was amazing that they did this. But how much did this actually impact the war effort? Uh, it's a great question. So uh, uh, let me try and sort of unpick it sl slightly. Uh, the reality is, in my view, it was incredibly important strategically. And I think when you come when you come to analyze military decision making, what you have to do is you have to ask yourself um, what the impact was at a grand strategic level, i.e. The, the level at which um, the global uh, war decisions were being made. So the conversations between Roosevelt, Hitler and Stalin and so on. And from a grand strategic perspective, it was incredibly important that America and Britain supported Chiang Kai-shek. And actually, through 1942 and 43, um, Roosevelt spent a lot of time trying to persuade um, Churchill in particular to invest in ground troops and ground operations in Burma, because that's what Chiang Kai-shek was asking for. Chiang Kai-shek was saying, the, in exchange for my commitment to fight the Japanese, I want you... Uh, Britain in particular, to deploy troops into Burma to recover the Burma Road. Well, the problem for Britain at the time and India was they didn't have the ability to do that. They didn't have the troops. Burma is a massive country. Uh, just for your uh, listeners who don't know much about the terrain, the war in Burma by 1945 was being fought from Calcutta. The distance from Calcutta forward into the Brahmaputra Valley, across the Naga Hills into Manipur, then across the Chinwin to um, Mandalay and then down from Mandalay to Rangoon is 1,800 miles. Now that's the same distance. Sorry, I didn't have an American equivalent, but that's the same distance as London to Moscow. Mm -hmm. So in right. 1945, we, the Allies, were having to fight a war in Moscow, the equivalent of Moscow, from London. Mm -hmm. Now this was critically important. It was critically important to keep Chiang Kai-shek in the war for all the reasons I've explained. And, um, and Britain had to find a way of committing ground troops. And as an aside, that was the rationale for Lord uh, Wingate's second Chindad expedition in 1944, Operation Thursday. Um, but we, we, that, that's a bit of a tangent here. So, so the, that's the first and most important thing. Now, at a grand strategic level, a commitment was made to support Chiang Kai-shek. And, and I've described that to you. At a strategic level and then at an operational level below that, you have to work out the best way of defeating the Japanese. What's the best way of using the resources that we've got to fight the war against the Japanese? And of course, that's where, as I touched on earlier, you have this really quite extensive battle between um, Stilwell and Claude Chenault. Now, Claude Chenault was presenting a, an aerial campaign mm -hmm. and um, Stilwell was presenting a different approach, which was to effectively 
um, build the road down to Michanar with American and Chinese troops. And he didn't really care what the Brits did. But the extraordinary thing about all this is, as you mentioned, is how egos and um, personalities got in the way, actually. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's an unusual campaign in the sense that it didn't really have the tight control of a George C. Marshall. Um, Stilwell actually was a very was a protege of Marshall's and Marshall held him in high regard. But, you know, the, you had a massive battle and both Claude Chenault and um, Stilwell fought out their battles. Uh, in Washington, as much as they did on the battlefield, there was a lot of political play here. Um, and I think, I mean, you, you can criticise, and I do, I criticise both parties. I think in 1943-44, Claude Chenault's strategy was wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, he was clearly out of date. He was, a, uh, he was an air power theorist from the early 1920s, and the early part of the Second World War had disproven his, his ideas dramatically. Um, but equally, Stilwell got things badly wrong. And the problem with Stilwell is that he saw American aid to China to be for operational purposes. Mm -hmm. Well, that was only partly true because the most important purpose of American aid was to show political goodwill towards China. And you had to make that work. You couldn't mm -hmm. just say the Chinese uh, were no good. They didn't fight very well. You couldn't just accuse Chiang Kai-shek of being peanut, which is a phrase he used <laughs> yeah. in his diaries are absolutely right. uh, terrible. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they were never they were never meant for publication, but yeah. I still cringe every time I read them. Yeah. Um, and I think that does reflect Stillwell's political naivety. He didn't uh -huh. realize actually this was a very significant war, um, a, a, a very significant political play rather. And um, he, you know, he he was very very limited by. Uh, that his particular viewpoint. And I've sort of concluded in my research over the years that Stilwell, an extraordinary guy, but he was an insufficiently competent strategist. He couldn't see the big mm -hmm. picture. Mm -hmm. um, and Claude um, Chenault was, um, he was failed by a, a flawed strategy, but actually he had the political support that he needed in the United States. Um, Claude Chenault was an interesting guy. He talked big, whereas Stilwell talked small yeah and um, the american i mean i call it uh, forgive me you know american hoodsburg i'm not being pejorative I'm being <laughs> here. Mm -hmm. the american view was always think big and people liked to grasp the big things and to mm -hmm. say and do things that everyone else regarded as being impossible and mm -hmm. you know what it worked it was really quite an extraordinary thing we wouldn't yeah. have the atomic bomb without it um and think about just the way that detroit was mobilized to become the the factory of the world you know equipping equipping everyone from the chinese to the russians and we we often forget that and of course when we when people in russia indeed um claim that they won the second world war they're forgetting that they were their troops were trucked to battle in british and american tanks mm -hmm. with american trucks with american and british um, petroleum um, and that's a really, really important um, point to make repeatedly because it was a logistically complementary war. People like Phillips O'Brien, uh, an academic in the United Kingdom, American academic in, uh, in Scotland, makes this point um, very well in one of his books that the complementary nature of the logistical war was the one that won it for the, for the Allies. It wasn't mm -hmm. simply... Um, each country on their own, do, doing their own bit, and and so the the the, um, the politics at play in um, 
in China uh, and Burma were really quite profound. Yeah. The other thing I, I just need to mention about the, those particular politics, going back to Churchill and Roosevelt, was that um, Roosevelt, oh, sorry, Churchill was never interested in launching troops that he didn't have in 1942-43 into Burma. Mm-hmm. He described the idea of sending troops back into Burma to undertake a land campaign against the Japanese as akin to um, jumping into the sea to wrestle with the shark. Hmm. You know, it's an absurd idea. What mm-hmm. Churchill wanted to do was to launch an amphibious set of operations against the Burmese coast to seize Rangoon and then launch further amphibious operations against Malaya and Singapore. Well, that's all well and good as a grand strategic idea. It falls apart in 1943 or 42 and 43 because the world's or the Allies' um, available seaborne resources for amphibious landings was seriously limited. Mm-hmm. In 1942, they were focused, of course, on um, uh, on operations in um, Madagascar, Madagascar, and then on North Africa, and then in 1943 on uh, Sicily, and then Italy. And then in 1944, mm-hmm. uh, and D-Day in Normandy. So it was only mm-hmm. after D-Day in Normandy that those amphibious assets were sent around to the Far East where they were used effectively in 1945. So you've got a, a serious problem here strategically. So St- Churchill didn't want to go into uh, Burma by land, but uh, Chiang Kai-shek was banging the drum in Washington saying, British aren't really interested in helping us. They don't want to undertake a land operation. And something fell into Churchill's lap, and that something was a chap called, um, I'll use his later rank, Major General um, Ord Wingate. Ord Wingate. Yeah, what a character. A real character. He, I mean, this this is the story of the War of the Far East. It was a war of characters. He's not mad. I've described him as, um, in other ways, he certainly wasn't mad. He's quite an intelligent fellow. Well, he was just very, someone who liked to eat onions when he was naked, right? That's yeah, a story that exactly always sticks right. in my mind. That's exactly right. That 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 gives a good summary of the character. Really, <laughs> really idiosyncratic. Yeah. Um, but he came out of the first Chinat expedition in 1943. It was a massive failure. He, he went in with 3,000 men and came back with 2,000, so he'd lost a third of his force. Very few of that those 2,000 who came back were actually worth anything. Uh, mm-hmm. in fighting later on, they... Uh, they didn't play much of a, a role in later campaigns. But in the, the story of British and Indian or Gurkha troops going behind uh, enemy lines in Burma um, was a really good one. It was mm. spun by the general headquarters in Delhi. Mm-hmm. And um, Wingate started to believe his own hype. And, mm-hmm. uh, and this came at a time when Churchill was desperately trying to find a way of placating Roosevelt and saying, well, we've got the capacity to help mm. in Burma. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this man, Ord Wingate, arrived. Churchill, he, Ord Wingate wrote a report that he sent directly to Churchill. He bypassed the generals in India, much to their annoyance. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he broke every rule there was. And he wrote a report that was really tendentious on reflection. I, I read it again last year in the production of my book, A War of Empires. It's quite hilarious in parts because a lot of it's just not true. It's He, he made a lot of it up in terms of the consequences of the potential for long-range penetration operations to a very large scale in Burma. It's a little bit novelistic. Um, but Churchill got hold of this, and he said to himself, this is the man who can um, wage the war successfully against the Japanese. And he even told his generals, this man, we should you know, make him the commander-in-chief. <laughs> uh, fortunately, he wasn't successful. 
But um, he was able, the, the timing was quite interesting because this all came about just before um, Churchill went off to the Quebec conference to meet Roosevelt and he put um, Wingate and his wife on the ship together, the Queen Mary, they went across um, and they met up with Roosevelt and Roosevelt introduced um, Ord Wingate, uh, sorry, <laughs> Churchill introduced Roosevelt to Ord Wingate mm. and Ord Wingate had had the time to develop some grandiose ideas for taking large numbers of men, throwing them behind enemy lines, destroying the enemy from behind and, um, and so winning the war. He had ideas of taking his long-range penetration operations deep into Thailand and, and onto Vietnam and so mm -hmm. on. Um, he was a very good talker. He was a very good salesman, Wingate, and he had everyone in the palm of his hand. He certainly had Roosevelt in the palm of his hand, and Roosevelt said, well, uh, uh, sorry, Churchill said, this is the man. He's going. He can lead a significant operation into Burma next year. Um, and Roosevelt said, well, we'll give you the air support and air supply and resources necessary. And eventually about 300 aircraft under a, a, an air commando uh, led by an American called Cochrane was put in place to establish this. But it's very interesting. Churchill only did this in exchange for, I mean, this is the point about grand strategies, a whole series mm -hmm. of exchanges and quid pro quos. Mm -hmm. um, Churchill was desperate to persuade Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt to accept his his um, Mediterranean policy. And the basic Mediterranean policy was after the invasion of um, West Africa in November 1940, Operation Torch, um, instead of going straight up to launch an invasion of uh, France across the Channel from Britain, what, is, what then became D-Day in June 1944, they would launch an operation against the Axis soft underbelly of Europe in Sicily and um and, and Italy. Uh, and of course, Roosevelt, in exchange for Churchill's commitment to Burma, agreed. So that's that's how decisions are made, actually. Yeah, and yeah. I, I keep on reminding people and my students in particular that the um, the, the famous uh, Chindad uh, expedition in 1944 had no operational purpose other than satisfying mm. this need for agreement between Churchill and Roosevelt. I see. And that's the, that's the start and the finish of it. Um, uh -huh. And actually, it turned out to be quite a dramatic failure. These 20,000 men and 300 aircraft, very brave men, and don't get me wrong, you know, it's quite an extraordinary story. But actually, they achieved nothing strategically. Uh -huh. And uh, I, I often talk about the importance of thinking about strategic effect. When you do something in military operations, think about the effect that it might have strategically. Does mm -hmm. it achieve your strategic objectives? Well, there are lots of operations in Burma that did achieve strategic objectives uh, very well, but the Chindits were not one of them. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to your question about the hump, I think in my, in my view, the hump was absolutely essential mm. to keeping China in the war. And mm -hmm. actually it met the grand strategic imperatives that I've laid out. Mm -hmm. um, it was a perfect way, um, and it was a perfect way of bringing Roosevelt and Churchill together and coming up with a um, an agreed strategy for the mm -hmm. Far East. It placated Chiang Kai-shek, although it wasn't ever an easy relationship between mm -hmm. the three of them. Yeah, uh, and then at a strategic level, as I've described, the the sub-level politics, as as perhaps we could describe it, between um, supporters of Stilwell and supporters of. of uh, were really quite destabilizing. Um, uh, what your listeners also need to know that by October 1943, um, the Roosevelt and Churchill had decided to create a new um, 
Command, Southeast Asia Command, led by Lord Louis Mountbatten as the combined mm -hmm. joint, um, so a multinational commander. And and my, in my view, it th that particular organization was a dramatic success. It mm. pulled everyone together for the first time. It gave everyone a single purpose. Interestingly enough, as as this opera organization began to shake itself out and to and to deliver combat effect on the battlefield. Uh, Stillwell, uh, by the way, was Mountbatten's deputy. He had a number of tasks, but one of them was his deputy. And interestingly enough, he absolutely failed. He was not a good uh, trinational commander. Mm -hmm. He um, he played a lot of politics behind Mountbatten's back. And, um, you know, he, he just didn't rise to the occasion. And I mean, I think that's one of the great challenges of war. You could be a good infantry platoon commander. You could be a really good company mm -hmm. commander and a battalion commander, but it doesn't mean that you've actually got the nous to be um, a great strategist right. or to understand the strategic level of war. But that's the big challenge that we, we had, of course, the Second World War. We had to expand our armies massively from next to nothing mm -hmm. to something quite extraordinary, and we had to learn on the job. Um, by the end of 1944, Stillwell had gone. He had been sacked and quietly moved on uh, and, and replaced with a series of other commanders. But... And I think, you know, by 1944, all that pol politicking had died away. We all knew what we were trying to do. We, um, speaking as a historian, mm. the, the Allies knew exactly what they were trying to do. And on the whole, they achieved it. Um, so, yes, it was important. Uh, it was politically critical. Uh, you know, the, the execution of it led much to be desired. And um, But it worked. It worked. And in this sort of chaos theory, the interesting thing about chaos theory is if, if you understand enough about the, the golden thread, what are you trying to achieve, and enough people are working towards it, you can mitigate the chaos. Um, hmm. you, you don't mitigate the chaos due to enemy action, but if you're well-trained and organized and well-led, then you can. I think that's probably one of the great stories of, of um, Second World War, one of the great stories of the Far East. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's quite a vision, and it's so interesting as well because all this this chaos that's going on, and all these egos, and these different motivations, and different factions, and different uh, ambitions and aspirations. I mean, really, all of this is painting the way to the problems that Burma would experience in the coming decades leading up till today. That's a whole other conversation is looking how many of these things laid the groundwork for conflict that's still ongoing now. But rather than guide this conversation forward at the moment, I wanna actually guide it backward and bring in a new character that is one of the main characters of your book that we haven't really talked about at all yet. That's the Naga people. So can you tell yeah. us what is Naga land and who are the Naga people? Okay, that's fabulous. Well, the, the Nagaland didn't exist till the early 1960s, and prior to that, they were mm -hmm. known as the Naga Hills. And um, there's a lot of confusion about um, the the nature of British colonialism in India. But suffice it to say that even by the 1930s, much of the Naga Hills weren't part of anyone's jurisdiction. Um, the, the Nagas are a, an ancient Mongolian um, tr tribe who came down probably a thousand years ago from Mongolia and po populated a lot of these hills and. Uh, and and elements of the the people traveled out actually as far as Papua New Guinea and so on. So an extraordinary diaspora, no one really knows why, but uh, those very, very clear genetic relationships between people in the hills and and other uh, other people who fled from Mongolia uh, a thousand years ago. 
Um, the Naga people at the time, maybe 200,000 people scattered across 16 or 17 language groups. These are entirely different language groups. Um, they, there was nothing in common between each language and another. And uh, in order to communicate, they needed to create another language, uh, which is now, which is known today as Nagami. So it's, a, it's an additional language to enable uh, people to communicate. And these people lived uh, agrarian subsistence lives in very small villages dotted across these uh, this mountainous terrain, the Naga Hills. Um, and to cut a very long story short, they were tended to be absorbed uh, into the, I call it the British Empire, they weren't really, weren't part of India, but they were absorbed into the control or security orbit of the empire by um, violence between the villages. So if I just tell a little story, in a, a village um, would be attacked by its neighbor, and in order to be able to um, secure itself, they would often go to the um, British colonial authorities, pay a little tax, and in exchange for the tax, receive security from future attack. The Nagas were traditional headhunters. Uh, headhunters provide headhunting provides a spiritual benefit to the recipient. So if you chop someone's head off, even if it's a child, you'll receive the spiritual value inherent in that individual, um, and it was more of a cultural right than a, um, you know, there wasn't widespread headhunting. It wasn't as though thousands have been killed every year, but it was sufficient to cause the the, the British uh, along the Brahmaputra Valley and in the hills at places called Kahima and Mokokchong to realise that if headhunting and, and violence continued, it would destabilise villages and it would lead to all-out war. So these Naga villages, I mean, as the years went by from the 1880s, when the British first arrived in the hills, uh, British sort of control with a small sea um, crept uh, deeper and deeper into the hills as more and more villages opted to pay their tax and re receive security from uh, the British government uh, in the form of the Assam rifles, who are basically a paramilitary force. And they would come under the control of the deputy um, commissioner for hill tribes, one of whom was based in Mokokchong and the other was based in Kahima. Mm -hmm. And they would do annual trips around the villages and they would be basically magistrates. So, you know, the tribal elders would uh, bring their tax to be paid. They would also um, bring any outstanding legal cases that they couldn't really manage themselves, murders and so on, uh, that they didn't deal with in their own way. And the district commissioners, oh, the the, sorry, the, not the district commissioners, the deputy commissioners, would deal with them in their own way. And there are a whole series of villages beyond the control of the British Empire. Um, the British uh, deputy commissioners for the Hill Tribes knew about them. And one of the most significant right on the border with Burma was this very large mega village of Panksha, which had a very mm -hmm. long tradition of violence towards its neighbours. In fact, all of its neighbours were terrified of it. It would launch regular attacks against um people outside the village stockades, capturing women and children. Uh, incidentally, um, um, headhunting was closely associated with slavery. So a village right. would often capture men, women and children out um, in the fields or uh, collecting water, and um, they would use them as slaves. And once, mm -hmm. when they thought it was opportune, um, they would kill them and take their heads and stick their heads on the the head poles that adorned the entrances to the villages. So slavery and headhunting were intertwined. Uh, and as I suggested, a little bit of headhunting was 
accepted by the British authorities <laughs> because, you know, what can you do about one or two heads taken? As soon as you get 30, 40 or more, you've basically got war on your hands. Yeah. And yeah. when that happened, the Assam rifles would be mobilized and sent out to stop the villagers undertaking that sort of activity. And these were known as punitive expeditions because the, the point of the message was that the point of the exercise was that if we send messages out to you to stop headhunting and raiding other villages and killing innocent men, women and children, uh, we'll come and we will punish you. That's the, the uh, that's the definition of punitive. Yeah. And a number of these punitive operations were undertaken in the 1920s and 30s. Some of them not very successfully, because what your listeners need to know is actually the Nagas were fearsome warriors. You really mm -hmm. didn't want to get involved with these guys, tangle mm -hmm. with them, because they were very, very good. Um, the one thing they didn't have were rifles, and they absolutely desperately wanted rifles. But they had every other sort of weapon you can imagine, from spears to bow and arrows and um, uh, punji sticks, and uh, which are... Uh, hardened bamboo with poison tips which they would put in pits on tracks and if you fell into them and you were injured then there's really little chance of you uh, surviving you know nasty forms of of dying actually um and these punitive expeditions were uh, were designed to um stomp on this activity mm -hmm. and uh you know persuade villagers to act within you know a broad uh, consensus or broad understanding of the law. Mm, right. And uh, another interesting part of the British Naga relationship in history that you go into are the particular um, administrators who were assigned here uh, in yeah. the Indian Civil Service, the ICS. And you describe how these were quite unusual characters for the type of colonial minister we usually think of and we usually think of in Burma. So tell us a yeah. bit about who these people were. Well, I mean, we do have this view, um, many of us, uh, a completely erroneous view about the nature of um, the uh, colonial administration. And as you quite rightly say, the colonial administrators in the hills tended almost exclusively to be really significant anthropologists in their own right. They were there to study the people. They wanted to preserve the cultures of the people. In fact, in 2010, the Indian government repealed the Restricted Area Permits Act, the RAP Act, which meant that you had to have a special permit to go into the hills. When mm. I first started going to Nagaland, I needed an RAP, which is mm. just bizarre. Mm -hmm. This began in the 1880s, and it was an attempt to stop non-Nagas from getting into the hills and upsetting or changing um, the peculiarities of Naga culture. So these mm -hmm. early administrators were anthropologists, and they were desperate to preserve uh, Naga culture, record it and preserve it. And they, they some very, very uh, impressive characters, J.P. Mills um, yeah. um, uh, stars very spectacularly in the 1936 story. Um, but he was one of a number of quite remarkable men who um, played a very significant role in preserving Naga traditions. And you go to Nagaland today and the 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 the, the history that's captured of Naga culture going back to the early days of the uh, the British uh, of Western involvement in Nagaland comes through these men. Mm -hmm. Just as an aside, some of the earliest white men to arrive in the hills, as I describe in the book, were American missionaries, mm -hmm. actually from the 1830s onwards. And immediately after the American Civil War, there seemed to be a sense of sort of American revitalized um, 
a revitalized sense of itself, which sent lots of evangelical, mainly Baptist missionaries to uh, uh, places all over the uh, Indo-Pacific, including Nagaland. Mm -hmm. uh, and the extent that the, the, the result of all that is that Nagaland is, I think it's 97% Christian today. It's a mm -hmm. very, very dramatically Christian part of India, very dramatically Christian part of the world, and they take their Christianity very seriously. Uh, and it began with, with Americans. So the Americans were there before the Brits. But going back to your point, yes, these um, what, what, these uh, uh, early administrators were really remarkable people. Um, and it's worth just saying that um, the, the support that the Nagas gave to the British during the climactic battle of Kahima in 1944 mm -hmm. was, was largely due to the fact that they trusted and supported their, um, the deputy commission, the DC. Mm -hmm. It's quite an extraordinary character, but uh, you know, the, during the, the battle, the British managed to feed the Nagas, look after them, keep them away from too much harm, um, bring them out of the jungle from where many of them had run when the Japanese arrived and, 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 and looked after them. So if we have a sense of uh, British colonial administrators being nasty judges who just wanted to punish and take taxes, that's entirely the wrong view, entirely the wrong view. It doesn't reflect at all the reality of life in, in these hills. Um, in the in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. So mm. the result is that you still had a little bit of this cultural practice of headhunting going on, mm -hmm. um, uh, but it was it was it was constrained by um, these large scale punitive raids that were undertaken uh, when 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 these mega villages like Pangsha just stepped out of line. Yeah, and I was struck by your book as well, where when you 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 give a lot of varying motivations from, which is you know the huge true the the true human cocktail of our, our intentionality and what drives us and in a very complex situation, but you do describe incidences where the the main colonial administrator that's in the Naga territory is taking certain actions, not really with. The British government in mind, but more an attention to how destabilizing uh, the headhunting practices, slavery obviously is the the how how much the fear of one larger power, one larger Naga power attacking another, takes away all the opportunity of being able to you know pursue education or other kinds of economic advancement. And some of, in their own words, some of these colonial administrators are describing how. They're, they're seeking greater stabilization and control really for a purpose of wanting to provide greater stability and prosperity to some of those weaker Naga tribes that just generation after generation are just caught in a cycle that doesn't really benefit anyone, but it's a culture they can't get out of. Well, you've, you've captured it entirely, and that, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, you either have endless war or endless peace. And if you want endless war, it's very easy. Just just allow these villages to keep on fighting each other. Mm -hmm. If you want endless peace, you have to set up mechanism structures uh, to enable that to happen. And, uh, I, you know, these um, deputy commissions were very impressive men uh, and their wives were pretty impressive as well. And they were able to um, they were able to see this issue in its starkness. Now, you can see it really particularly uh, at the end of the war when Britain started preparing to leave India. Mm -hmm. And the Nagas immediately said, we don't want you to leave Britain, sure, we want yeah. you to stay. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something I touch on at the end of the book, and it's really quite amazing. There's a lot of lot of work. Uh, well, sorry, there's not a lot of work done on it, but actually the the evidence is very clear from stuff that was written at the time. Mm -hmm. That um, the the deputy commissioners uh, for the hill tribes 
were desperate to preserve the integrity of the Naga and the Nagas themselves, yeah, but they yeah. realized that without the British being there, they would simply revert to this earlier cycle of, uh, of warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would never be peace. And even though it wasn't what the Nagas wanted, uh, staying as part of India or leaving as part of the, the, the handover to India was probably the best way of ensuring this extension of peace now, if you are interested only in Naga culture then and in, in the preservation of what the Nagas have always done, then you'd be happy to leave them to continue their warring ways. Yeah. But, I mean, there's a there's a degree of paternalism here which says actually yeah, if, you, yeah. if, you, if you want to achieve long-term peace, it has to be enforced. It's a very interesting dilemma. Yeah. Um, and as a consequence, Britain uh, uh, handed over the, the Naga Hills to India when, when Britain left in 1947. Uh, now, the ramifications for that are really dramatic and have been yeah. dramatic. Even, I mean, I've been challenged repeatedly by friends in Nagaland. One in particular I can think of now who says, Rob, you know, Britain shouldn't have left. And I keep on saying, well, Britain didn't have much choice, but right. we're not Indians. Why did you leave us to the Indians? Mm-hmm. Well, that's just, that's life, I'm afraid. But um, it's very interesting how passionate these um arguments still run many, many years after the amendment. Sure. And another consequence of that is that, you know, I couldn't help but but um, feel a sense of this horrific familiarity by the punitive missions you describe of the British, where their their main and and primary goal is burning villages. And this has been a, a primary goal of the Tatmada, the Burmese military, um, going back decades and is one of the, you know, I, I don't have the numbers offhand, but since the military coup a couple of years ago, the number of villages that have been burned across Myanmar and the number of, of people that have been displaced has been horrific. And I was, as this was going on, I was just, uh, in the early stages, I was like, this is, you know, I haven't really heard this kind of tactic from other conflicts or civil wars that you just, and sometimes they even go to a village and they tell the villagers, okay, you have one hour to leave. They're actually, in some cases, they kill everyone. In some cases they say, we're going to burn your village. You have to leave. And I was speaking to someone from Amnesty International last year, and they were saying that they're working on a report. We hope to have this as a podcast later that is is really examining this this study, this practice of the 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 Tatmada today and in past decades using the burning of civilian villages as a um as as one of their main tactics. I mean, the Tatmadas they're they're you know they they're uh, so their strategic ability can sometimes be argued in terms of it, its effectiveness. They just kind of hit it they, every they see everything as a nail and they they uh, they just have the same hammer and hit it. And one of those hammers is the burning of villages. And the person I was speaking to at Amnesty said they were tracing this back to the colonial era of how the the British would pacify some of the ethnic regions. In that was one of their tactics. And like so many of the things the Tatmada does today is influenced either by the Japanese Imperial Army or the colonial um, British presence. Yeah, well, it definitely is in, in my area of, of expertise and interest. I, I would completely reject the, the Amnesty International argument. I, I understand it, but actually you can't draw direct parallels. The, the reason why you can't draw direct parallels is A, there were very, very few punitive expeditions. Second, the punitive expeditions that were undertaken were undertaken to burn villages, not kill people. So that's a very, very significant distinction. And even burn villages, look, the village, most of the villages were rebuilt every year anyway, but the idea was to punish the recalcitrant villages, mm-hmm. not for um, 
uh, not for cocking a snook at the imperial power, because there wasn't really much imperial power there, but for destabilizing the localities. And thirdly, it's very important that the punitive expeditions undertaken in the 1920s and 30s in the main were undertaken with the support and agreement of local Naga villages. So mm-hmm. Ching Mai, uh, Shang Mac rather, um, and Tun Sang next to Pangsha, they were they were the villagers that were regularly being beaten up by Pangsha, and they were the ones who asked for support. So the the, the Tatmadaw um, model or, or argument is is not a logical one in my view. Now, there's an easier way of explaining what is going on in Burma, which is really to understand the continuing um, civil war that's been raging in Burma since the Japanese invasion in January 1942. And I think it's really quite straightforward, actually, we get rid of the modern politics. The reality is that the Bama people have been at hammer and tongs on the whole, I don't want to overgeneralize, with the people of the hill tribes for a very, very long time. The Japanese invasion in January 1942 managed to um, uh, exploit original or existing divisions and set the people against each other. So that you see throughout 1942, 43, 44, a very significant um very significant indeed support, as I've said earlier, um, by the people of the hill tribes, the Kachins in particular, the Karens, a less extent the Shans, but certainly the Nagas, and also the Rohingyas in support of the the British stroke, the Allies in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that has continued uh, to this day. It really is quite the the the, the the ethnic stroke political divide in Burma is as stark now as it ever was. And I'm sorry that that's, that's just the case, that the divide is dramatic. I mean, one of the real challenges that Burma has faced is that in the early days, Aung San, uh, of course, who understood that the only way a future polity could be established in Burma, uniting the hill tribes and the Burma together mm-hmm. would be by, by linking everyone in the same political universe. He was assassinated by people who disagreed with him who were pushing uh, the line of Bamar exceptionalism. And I think Bamar exceptionalism is a significant problem. Um, and if you're um, the Tatmadaw and you're fighting against um, the people on the periphery of Burma, all around the, the horseshoe of Burma, and you're, uh, you think that those people are, um, are your enemy, you've only got one way of dealing with them, and that is to go into their territories and burn their villages and kill their people. That's not something the British ever did. This is a Tatmadaw, this is a Burmese strategy to assert their power and authority over the people of the hill tribes who frankly don't support the um, structures of political control um, or um, violence in Burma and Myanmar. And this is a re- this is the fundamental challenge. I think it's very, very uh, easy to blame or create or you blame a historical precedent for what's going on in the villages. But I, I do um, suggest that it's entirely concocted. You don't need to create a, a precedent by looking at the colonial suppression of uh, villages like Pangsha in order to be able to explain away Tatmadaw excesses against the Chins or the Karens. It just you don't need to do it. It it happens because these individuals and these these villages and these people, the Karens, Chins and so on, are um antipathetic to the current regime in, in Burma or are perceived to be mm-hmm. uh, uh, c- considered the enemy. That's the fundamental problem. 
Mm, thanks for that. Um, going back and looking at historically the uh, the Naga people and Naga land, there you lay out um, kind of three different groups of people of Westerners that are starting to have influence on Naga culture. And I wonder if you can tell us both what influence they had as well as how they how they worked with each other, how they liked each other, how they might have been antagonistic. One is the missionaries, which you've already mentioned, largely American Protestants. Another are the colonial administrators that are there. We've already mentioned that. The third, yeah. which has not been mentioned, is the East India Company. Um, so if you can share those three different groups yeah, of people okay. and how they came to interact and intersect in Naga territories yeah. in that time. Yeah, certainly. Well, let's start with the East India Company because the East India Company sort of ended at the end of the... Um, the mutiny uh, in 1850, early 1858, after the, after the mutiny in 1857. So the East India Company uh, had been going since the Battle of Plassey in um, uh, 1780, whenever it was, 1785. And um, the East India Company was uh, primarily concerned about establishing its commercial prerogatives, and it did so in many cases in a pretty blunt and brutal manner. Um, it wanted to protect its markets and it wanted to protect its trade. It wasn't interested in gaining territory. But if you want to secure your trade, then it's quite important that you suppress um, decoitery you dis- uh, or, or um, mm-hmm. violence or uh, and, and you establish militias to be able to um, create security in the areas that you control. Um, and of course, in the 1840s and 50s and 60s, uh, in Assam, uh, um, tea was being grown for the first time and mm-hmm. quite extensive tea interests were invested in by the East India Company or uh, controlled by the East India Company and um, and a commercial interest and a security interest was first created. Now, the Brahmaputra Valley in Assam, these are the foothills of the Naga Hills. So the, the, the people living in the hills, the Nagas, and the Nagas would see uh, all this going on and would come down and raid the tea plantations kill a few people, uh, take away goods. Um, the, the, the Nagas would always come down and trade for salt because there's no salt in the hills. But, you know, in addition to this, they would launch um, quite regular regular uh, expeditions of their own raiding parties down at the Brahmaputra Valley. This have clearly um, got up the nose of the East India Company, but actually nothing much was done about it until the British government under what, what we all know as the Raj took over in 1858 and started to regularize government. And, and there's a very significant change here in 1858 from a commercial sort of freewheeling commercial enterprise where the primary focus of life uh, and of law and um, the structures of social existence were built around trade. Uh, all of a sudden under, under the Raj, uh, the, the world was turned upside down and the, the preeminent priorities were about civil order. Mm-hmm. The purpose of the, the Raj and of British government was civil order, um, and the Indian civil service all of a sudden was was uh, you know played a very significant role, and um, in the governance of India and the East India Company troops became part of the Indian Army and so on. So we had the East India Company joining into the Raj. The, the Raj had to put down or felt that I had to put down um, the raiding Nagas. One of the most significant Naga uh, tribes was the Angami tribe based in Kahima, which is now on the road through to Manipur. And interestingly enough, in uh, 1879, at, at the Angami town of Kahima was um, subdued by British troops 
uh, supported by Manipuri troops, by the uh, by the princely state troops of the princely state of Manipur, further to the east. So, I mean, this is another little point about the empire. The empire grew uh, as a result of um, joint interests between powers, power and powers. So, the British Raj wanted to uh, put down the Angami Nagas and Kahima, and so did the uh, Maharaja of Manipur who lent troops for that particular purpose. Very interestingly enough, very shortly after um, Konama and Kahima had been subdued in, in 1879, 1880, you know, um, the, the, the missionaries of whom I've mentioned and you have touched on um, began to play a very significant part. Uh, until then, uh, there was a small number of, of missionaries, but from the 1880s, a very large number came in from America, some from Britain, and uh, began to change the uh, change in agriculture directly. I mean, men were encouraged mm-hmm. to wear trousers, mm-hmm. women um, to, to to wear dresses and and so on, and to worship uh, a foreign god. Actually, it didn't take long for the Nagas to worship the uh, Protestant or Christian god because there are so many parallels between the Christian story and what Nagas had taught themselves about the nature and existence of God. It's an absolutely fascinating story. Um, so that particular um, process of conversion wasn't a difficult one, and it certainly wasn't imposed. But it was not liked by the cultural custodians of Naga of Nagaland or the Naga Hills, namely the anthropologist-minded um, deputy commissioners. So the British civil servants put in charge of overseeing the administration of the Naga Hills, on the whole, hated anything that wasn't a benign Anglicanism. So this Mm -hmm. strident evangelical American Protestantism, which Mm -hmm. was changing uh, Naga culture quite dramatically, was regarded as anathema by the deputy commissioners. So you you Mm -hmm. are right. There is really a a dramatic culture clash here in the 1880s and 90s and the early part of the 20th century between um, American Christians who said, well, to be a real Christian, you need to live a different life. And the, mm-hmm. the, the, the cultural mores which describe a Christian life are you know, going to church on Sunday, singing hymns and wearing trousers. Um, whereas the um, British approach and the, the, the approach of the colonial administrators with their sort of benign Anglicanism was, was much more relaxed. It was much I more see. of a of a mm-hmm. complementary, let's allow um, Naga, the Naga culture to uh, develop. Uh, if they want to adopt Christianity, that's great. They can express it in their own way. We'll, we'll clamp down on the various excesses like slavery and, and uh, headhunting, but we're not interested. And we don't actually, we're, we're dead against changing the, the culture of these extraordinary people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's very interesting. It's very interesting looking at the arguments. People today perhaps just have this binary view of colonialism and its, and its so-called oppression. Yeah. Actually, in reality, it's it's much different. It's much more nuanced, and it's much more startling in its realities uh, that actually the British colonial administration in the Naga Hills was, you know, you might describe it today as being woke because it was desperately, <laughs> desperately keen on preserving the, um, right. the privileges of an ancient culture that modernity was um, was threatening to strip away. And even if parts of the expression of that culture involved mm-hmm. headhunting, so be it. 
Mm, that's it's interesting because I, I think you're right. I think if if you were to present someone today this kind of generalized monolithic view of like, well, you have these white people going into this area where it hasn't really seen outsiders and, you know, they want to create order and stability and bring religion and have commerce and tax. And it's these all these things sound like a package. You know, they sound like they all go together. And to really look under the hood and pick them apart and you see that that these are actually clashing with each other and that it's not one monolithic force coming, but they're they're yeah. from these three different parties. They're they're exactly. prioritizing what what it is they want to bring, how, what, how they want to act, interact with the culture. And in some ways, these aspects are actually directly among the white people, the, the British and the Americans mainly that are there. These values are actually directly clashing with each other in terms of what they want to bring to the Nagas. But, it, you know, certainly that's not the view you get if you just get a, a generalized view of the white colonial experience and the primitive people. Exactly right. And I think I think this, well, there's been some very good um, books recently in the UK, one by Professor Nagas bigger on colonialism last year which actually makes this point very very well that there is no such um single view of colonialism we need to we need to look at it in, in the round uh you know no one's suggesting that colonialism is necessarily um a, an ideal form of polity or a good form of polity but in the circumstances it needs to be understood in mm -hmm. its individual context wherever that might be and in india there are very very many sorts of um that colonial context which you know, need, need exploring and, and we, as historians we ought to be encouraging uh, everyone to understand the nuances of history rather than just trying to lump it together to something that makes sense uh, as a generalization but actually is inaccurate that's one of my big concerns as a historian a lot mm -hmm. of the history I hear is actually quite inaccurate even though it makes sense mm -hmm. uh, from general perspective. Mm, so just one more question before we get back to the story of that you tell in the book. And I think this is fascinating because we're, we're getting, we're going into depth and in all these different people and pe people as individuals, peoples as ethnic groups, and then the clash of where they come together. But the question I have is where do the Bamars fit into this, both in terms of the pre-colonial era, did the Bamar kingdoms have any contact with the Nagas in World War II? And then if you want to carry it on after independence and, and Naga got, you mentioned, I think, one Naga village that actually, that actually sits right on the line that ended up being divided between India and Burma. But where, where how would you describe historically the, the Bamar-Naga relationship? Well, you need to remember that the uh, Bamars, the people of Burma, the Buddhist people of Burma, actually um, were part of an ancient kingdom, which um, which ran all the way across the, what are now the Naga Hills and Nagaland into Manipur. So hmm. the Nagas and the um, Manipuris and the and the Bamars, uh, you know, have been together at various times uh, in the same kingdom for for a long period of time. Their 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 ancient history stretches back as far as ours does, so that that's part of the the context. Uh, of course, uh, as the Ahom Empire died and the uh, the, the Burmese kingdom uh, came in on itself and established relationships with the Shan states and so on. Its relationships with the people of the hills, not just the Nagas, but the Kachins and the Karens itself, was always rather tenuous. And it was always mm. on the basis of um, local accords and so on for the purpose of trade and peaceful coexistence. But I think this is one of the real problems with, with Burma, um, it, you know, it, it operating as a, as a unique entity where it represents the views of all the people uh, in the country. And, and I w would suggest that actually that's never been the case. It's been one sure. of the problems. Yeah. In fact, you might make a case, and, and earlier writers have, that actually the period of 
55 years of colonial rule from 1885 through to the end of the war, or actually the start of the Second World War, was the, the first and only time in modern in modern times where Burma was united. Now, of course, that's not a palatable uh, mm-hmm. argument for those mm-hmm. for those of a an anti-colonial bent, but actually in terms of historical reality, mm-hmm. it is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same argument can be made about India. Uh, you know, the British, better or worse, or not the British, uh, British people and Indian people together made an India that um, uh, that was largely united. It was a very interesting conglomeration of uh, British government directly uh, controlled parts of India and about 570 princely states, all of which had uh, individual agreements or not with the British government to operate in a particular way and so on. They had their own Maharajas. You know, it was very, very interesting um, set of dynamics. And um, and immediately after a partition, that those arrangements fell apart and India uh, split its three ways. It's two ways first and then three. So um, it's 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 very interesting set of dynamics. And I the, the, the Nagas are between the going back to your original question, the Naga people spread right across the borders. These borders are largely colonial in their own positions. Yeah. The border yeah. between India and, and Burma was applied on a map, and it's quite hilarious when you look at the map nowadays mm-hmm. to realize you know, there's no rhyme or reason to a lot of it. In mm-hmm. fact, in northern Manipur and the Naga Hills. Uh, those parts of the world were never properly mapped by the British. Mm-hmm. The mapping under what was known as the Survey of India, there were some big exercises undertaken in the 1920s, early 1930s, but the Second World War put a stop to it. So there are still large parts, now complete, but there were large parts on independence where uh, the maps just didn't exist. But those the Naga people um, uh, spread out into, into Burma. Uh, and I mean, one of the great challenges, of course, both for India and Burma, even today, is for is to allow peaceful coexistence of the uh, these uh, these tri- this tribe in particular between the two countries, and to allow their tribal identity to uh, be respected um, regardless of international borders. So, uh, the real challenge with the Burmas, so the Buddhist Burmas of the you know who hold the um, who hold power in Burma and have done for a very long time, the big challenge is to be able to absorb. Uh, into their system of belief and of poverty, uh, polity and of organization as a nation, not just as a state, but as a nation uh, of all the people of the hill tribes. And I I have to say that I don't think that the government of Myanmar over many years, Burma then Myanmar over many years, has successfully solved that problem. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to consider yourself and conceive yourself as a united Burma, uh, not just impose impose that that uh, point of view on everyone who's within the borders of Burma. You actually have to work um, positively, as I mentioned earlier, with the Naga Hills. You have to create the systems and structures and processes to uh, to enable a nationhood to grow. Um, and you're never going to do that in Myanmar if you just beat up the Chins or the or the Karens. Or, sure. Yeah. You know, if you if you utilize violence, the one thing I wanted to say earlier was the fact that actually. The, the, the really tragic thing about Myanmar is that the government doesn't seem to understand that every time they use violence against um, the Chin villages that we've, we've seen and, and the Karens over many years, mm-hmm. they simply create more warriors for their for their for the opposition. Right. They're creating enemies for themselves. They're not mm-hmm. doing anything to create a long peace. I made the point yeah. before, very easy, very easy indeed to allow the cycle of war to continue. It's very difficult 
to impose a set of um, structures that uh, will enable peace to, to grow. And Myanmar needs to do that. If Myanmar wants peace, if Myanmar you know, wants to create a, a national polity and a national uh, identity, there are very good ways of, of doing it. Um, but but um, stamping on and creating violence or causing violence against the, the people of the hill tribes is not the way to do it. Yeah, they've never had a hearts and minds campaign, that's for sure. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we've we've done a really good job in this conversation, which kind of maps also the journey in, that you treat in your book of, on one hand, talking about these very modern developments of a world war and the coalitions that are coming together, the armaments, the um, the fighting that's taking place. And it just so happens that, as is in the case in a lot of places around Burma, in particular, this book focuses on Naga, that all of these modern forces and personalities and grandoise operations that are taking place in this whole scheme of, uh, of, of this massive worldwide fight between great countries, that these particular characters fall into this, I guess you can call this land before time, although the, of course yes. the British had the British and the American missionaries had a presence there, but you're, you're talking about these, these characters, these American characters that are representing each of them in different ways, representing very important and different aspects of the missions that are taking place. And they suddenly find themselves in a place that is not quite as primitive as it was maybe a half century before, but is certainly not very exposed to the, to the outer world. And that there's a lot of misconceptions and, um, and, and probably just basic fears about, especially at that time, what this primitive society represented and the danger of, uh, of the plane crashing down there. And some of them were very legitimate in terms of the, um, uh, I think, uh, I think surviving a plane crash, even in peaceful times, is not a very pleasant or, or, um, not a very pleasant experience that assures any type of survival, uh, surviving it during wartime with the Japanese zeros that are also hovering in the area and the different, uh, the different peoples that are, um, that are occupying different parts of where the plane crash actually takes place. So we've set up this, this clash of cultures and now it goes from the general to the very specific in terms of time and place and people and everything else. So uh, take us from there. Well, I mean, that's that's extraordinary. I mean, the whole thing about this story is all of a sudden you have this vast war uh, um, summarized in the lives and experience <laughs> of, um, of a handful of people mm-hmm. who don't know each other, by the way, yeah. thrown together into the C-46 that is flying across to Yunnan province that um, experiences an engine failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, is a heavily laden aircraft, and it has to turn around to go back over the hills in order to uh, land back at the airfield at Chabua. But of course, it's losing power in one of its engines and then losing altitude. Mm-hmm. So, so as every minute goes by, um, the pilot and the co-pilot start to realize they're not going to get over back over these these mountains. So they give orders mm-hmm. that uh, all the um, the stuff, the extraneous stuff in the plane is thrown out and it's really extraordinary reading John Payton's diaries and, and Eric Severard's diaries in fact mm-hmm. uh, you know parting with really precious mementos and and stuff as it all went out the back of the plane in an attempt to enable it to survive uh, they're over remote jungle clad hills uh, they don't know where they are and um, 
By an extraordinary set of coincidences, uh, everyone managed to get out, apart from the co-pilot, Second Lieutenant Charles Felix, who is killed uh, as the plane goes in. He's a very brave man. He stays at the controls of the plane mm -hmm. to allow everyone else to get out. Because I think one of the things that struck me going through the story minute by minute mm -hmm. was how long it took for the survivors actually to jump out. And I think in taking time, it's very hard to criticize now, of course, I wasn't there, but the time they took to physically jump out of the plane and pull their parachutes mm -hmm. uh, meant that actually by the time the last person jumped out, there was no time for Charles Felix to get out of the plane. Very brave mm -hmm. man. And, um, you know, this is all, this is the intimate tragedy of war. This mm -hmm. is, these men are pulled together by the vagaries of circumstance. They didn't ask to be there. They're fighting war. Many of them don't fully understand. They're in a part of the world they definitely don't understand. Mm -hmm. They're there because they represent um, a patriotic uh, obedience to um, their country and the requirements of their country to fight. Uh, and they arrive uh, under parachutes floating down on this barren um, landscape. Actually, not so barren in some parts, because when they land, they discover that there are parts of these hills that have been cultivated before. Now, we all know, because we've been talking about it, that the land is occupied by Nagas. Now, mm -hmm. where, where these um, the, the occupants of the plane landed was a very close to um, the Naga village of Panksha, which uh, everyone will know by now was a very mm -hmm. large mega village uh, and undertaken some very significant raids against its neighbours, killing lots of people in the 1920s and 30s. And it was finally subdued in a very significant punitive expedition uh, led by the Assam Rifles in 1936 and actually in a subsequent uh, campaign in 1937, all with the support of neighbouring Naga villages, um, Changsang and Tunsang. And, um, but th these, <laughs> I, I laugh when I think about mm -hmm. these young Americans floating down under the parachutes with this view of American superiority, mm -hmm. superiority of American know-how and of... Um, power and of might and they are emerging or they're finding themselves dropping into a world that has no comprehension absolutely zero comprehension uh, of this power uh, of this nation across the seas and you know never seen a railway never seen a train they knew about the existence of planes because they saw the planes flying across the sky Mm -hmm. Now, it's very interesting when you ask the Nagas, what do they think about these planes? They said, oh, we, we, we just saw them as the gods. This is the gods <laughs> demonstrating their power. So put yourself into Naga shoes. You're a punctual warrior. Mm. You've, you've, yes, you've been um, dealt a blow by, uh, by the British in 1936 and 37. You've got no real reason to appreciate the white man, apart from the fact that you might appreciate their power and so on. But all of a sudden, a whole bunch of white men come falling on top of your village in mm. parachutes. Now, it's a mind-boggling thing to contemplate, actually, for us and for the Americans who were who were undertaking that, that evacuation from the plane. Mm -hmm. It was equally mind-blowing for the Pancherites to see these people descending on them. And you can imagine that they had a number of choices in their heads. You know, what do we do with these people? Do we, um, who are they? Are they angels? Are they come from the gods? Are they, are they a gift to us? Um, bear in mind that um, the Pancherites had occasionally met white men. Uh, they met J.P. Mills, of course, in 1936 and um, the Sam Rifles. They knew what rifles could do. They'd been trying 
for about a decade or more to get hands of rotten rifles. And all of a sudden, these white men arrive in their uh, you know, Western clothes with boots and uh, equipment and belts and woven clothes and watches and so on that just really blow them, uh, blow their minds because all of a sudden they're thrown into a, you know, a 21st century world at war with all the power and strength and engineering expertise, including the parachutes. It's quite an extraordinary way of jump off, you know, coming out of the sky in a parachute which they had never contemplated before. So I think we can't underestimate the dramatic cultural discombobulation of the Pankshireites. And in many respects, I think this probably uh, explains why they behaved so benevolently to the, uh, to the survivors of the air crash. They, uh, you know, if the survivors ever knew, they only really uh, understood towards the end of their time in the jungle uh, who these Pankshireites were, that they were the mm-hmm. most fearsome headhunting tribe in the entire region, they would have had reason to fear. Mm-hmm. But actually all the evidence of their meeting the men and women of Pankshire, actually it was really the men, that the women were kept quite clear, that Pankshireites weren't sufficiently trustful of these, uh, of these newcomers to allow them access to the women of the village. So the women were sent away uh, to other parts of the village where they weren't seen. Mm-hmm. There were plenty of children that came out and, and met them and so on. But, uh, you know, it's it could have gone either of uh, either way. They could just have been slaughtered and their heads stuck on pikes, which is what normally would happen. But this mm-hmm. was such an extraordinary cultural um, event that the crisis, the cultural crisis created by it, enabled the Westerners to survive and for the Pankshireites to look after them. Now, they were eventually uh, rescued by a, uh, a, rever- a punitive expedition sent out from Mokajong. Um, and I think the, um, that expedition came in the nick of time because I think by that stage, the newness and um, uh, dramatic nature of the arrival of the survivors from the, from the air crash, the parachutists, was wearing off. And the Pankshireites were now thinking, well, you know, what's in it for us next? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you, you can understand, I think, the benevolence of the first few weeks, uh, but thereafter, it's um, uh, less easy to understand. It, it, it's, mm-hmm. it, well, it's very easy to see where things could have gone frankly, um, uh, if they hadn't been rescued um, from uh, by a, a, a British and then the Sam Rifles uh, expedition out to Pankshire. Well, you reference how once they start getting airdrops, and that includes food items and including canned foods, that when they eat the food and they want to dispose the leftover tins, that almost leads into a riot of the different villagers who want to see that tin as kind of a prize. I mean, because obviously they've never seen anything like that and there's no further access to just simply getting a tin can uh, in the jungle. Well, tin was uh, was just unknown in the mountains and mm. um, and the the swords or, pa- or um, sort of machetes that the Pankshireites had was, was very care- carefully um, sourced from within Burma itself and then down into, into India as well on, on expedition, trading expeditions. So there was, there was a bit of tin and steel uh, or metal in the hills, but it's quite extraordinary. Yes, you say, you, know, you mentioned the tin cans. I mean, all the rubbish that um, 
the this commercial society this this that America had produced, the boys were just happy to chuck away the tin cans without realizing the dramatic value that a tin can had to uh, a member of a Naga tribe in the middle of the these these hills. Pieces of string, a- anything left over. I mean, the mm-hmm. parachutes themselves were remarkably prized, highly prized. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, th- that's that's part of this clash of of cultures that was really quite quite dramatic and and um you know i think there, there wasn't a single survivor from that from the air crash that wasn't able to see that these two cultures were so diametrically different mm-hmm. to each other it's a little bit like you know if you think about you know we call them hopefully not pejoratively but stone age tribes in, in papua new guinea that's the same sort of thing it's really right, right. a tribe of people that have never experienced any form of modernity and all of a sudden um, have these uh, have have um, you know twenty odd people arrive out of the sky with no warning uh, mm-hmm. and expect to be looked after and uh, and you have to you have to create a whole new set of um, tr- uh, interactions and social interactions and communicate effectively with each other and you know that's hard how do you make all that up out of nothing um, I think that's the triumph of the story the the fact that you know both mm-hmm. American survivors and Naga Pancharites. Uh, actually were able to communicate, talk to each other at, at levels of their base humanity that enabled mm-hmm. uh, both sides to survive, you know, quite respectively, irrespectively rather, and, and get through this, uh, this this event, which was culturally traumatic. There's, there's very little that we could actually um, think of being, uh, being dramatic than being more culturally traumatic in history. Th- think about sort of, you know, missionaries arriving in a, in a foreign village and, 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 and villages, seeing these strange people arrive with a strange mm-hmm. story and strange language. You know, this was this was quite a dramatic yeah. event. And, yeah, um, coming from the sky, literally. Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard enough, you know, for, for Americans coming to London, you know, and us coming to, <laughs> to America to just to be able to assist, recognize that we're in different cultures and, and mm-hmm. make allowances for them. Mm-hmm. This was really quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. Right. So they except for this one um co-pilot who unfortunately dies during the crash heroically staying on to the last moment all the rest of them survive albeit very difficult in terms of um having to stay for a number of weeks until they're able to find a way out and then i think it was adams who was the the uh the local yes. british that was stationed yes. there is is able and, and and knows the naga and and speaks their language and is able to to, to lead them out and they all eventually get to safety. And then after this incident, what, what goes on with the story in terms of the, um, um, specifically in terms of, of what this crash meant. And I'm thinking, as I say this, I'm thinking that you, you go on to reference the, uh, uh, as, um, one character in the story that we haven't told this doctor, um, Don Flickinger, I think his name is, if I'm saying it right, is, uh, decides to, um, to parachute in and to, uh, to stay, to, to administer medical needs of the survivors of the crash. And this gives way to Blackie's gang, as you describe, which, um, in which you have a, a rapid response team that is because the, the, you mentioned the, all the planes that are going down over the hump, that this medical response team gets um, much more efficient at being able to drop in and identify where the crashes take place and have a better survival rate. 
Well, the, the, that's a great question. The truth is that the Panksha event on the 2nd of August 1943 was the start of modern um, military search and rescue. And oh, and this, hmm. Yeah, th this was uh, very, very finely developed and attuned by the United States in particular. Mm -hmm. And it all began with Panksha. Mm -hmm. uh, because the um, one of the military, one of the doctors, Don Flickinger at Chabu Air Base, when he heard that um, one of the uh, air crew, the radio operator, Sergeant Walter Oswald, had badly broken his leg without, despite being told not to, um, didn't think twice about getting up in a C-47 and jumping out with two of his orderlies who he offered them the the, the choice of coming with them. They'd never, he had, Flickinger had jumped once before, but the other two hadn't. Mm -hmm. And they just parachuted, you know, with no training into Panksha. I mean, it was quite an extraordinary sacrifice, a remarkable story by Don Flickinger, who was a remarkable man. And Don Flickinger sorted out um, Walter Oswald's leg. And there's some wonderful footage uh, on Pathé News of um, the, uh, the rescue as the, the, the crowd of survivors uh, were coming out at Mokokchong several weeks later mm -hmm. with uh, Oswald um, on a, um, a beer or a, a stretcher carried by, by Nagas, really quite extraordinary footage. But um, he fixed up Oswald, but he, he then also started um, helping some of the villagers with um, boils and, um, and illnesses and, and, and so on. Uh, and this was a, this played a very important part, in my view, uh, in de-escalating any potential tension that might have existed between the Pancturites and the survivors. Mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden, this power that the white men had, because that's how they were seen, the white men from the sky, these angels from the sky, mm -hmm. was good. It was virtuous. It helped them. It didn't rape or pillage. It didn't kill them. It didn't take their heads off. It actually helped the children. It gave them things. It gave them tin and string and rope and bits of metal um, and that's that can't be gainsaid it's very important to understand that often these uh, these interfaces are regarded in moral terms and mm -hmm. factorites very clearly saw uh, the the americans as custodians of moral virtue that's, that's a very important point but in terms of uh, rescue yes i mean very very quickly don flickinger and a number of others created a uh, dedicated um aerial recovery or aerial recovery teams um one of them blackie's gang sadly shot down by japanese aircraft not much uh, long after that was they were established and they did a, a tremendous amount not least of all in in giving confidence to the air crews going over the hump that if they were to come down uh over this this inhospitable this terrible terrain um the the americans at chabby would do everything in their power mm -hmm. to help and, you know, I can't give you the, the, the figures at the top of my head. I don't have them. But large numbers of aircrew were subsequently helped by, um, by air sea rescue. And, of course, this was then further developed in Korea and then massively expanded in Vietnam. And it all began at mm -hmm. Village of Pancha in August 1943, which, you know, is an extraordinary story, really. Um, and it's, all these stories have an extraordinary element, in my view, because... They began uh, because of the agency of one man. If it wasn't for Don Flickinger, the doctor, hmm. saying mm -hmm. that, you know, casting aside all instructions to do otherwise, he said, no, we've got a wounded man. I'm going to jump in and help him because I can. And he did so. And by his personal agency, he, he, re he rewrote history and created his hmm. rescue uh, in a way that we, we now understand it with dedicated military crews, with dedicated doctrine and training and, and so on. Um, 
And, you know, he also played a significant role in, in de-escalating or, you know, de-escalating potential of problems with the Pankshireites in the village through his medical expertise. Mm, yeah, that's 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 great. It's uh, this little microcosm of all these personalities with different ambitions coming together and then seeing the uh, the way that this particular incident then goes on to uh, to set a precedent for other things. And in closing, the, the last question I have is to look at the Naga people and their legacy and um, going through the, uh, you, you, you referenced these lines drawn on colonial maps that, that separate uh, villages and these artificial ways between India and Burma. And then looking to today, what are we seeing today in Naga territories? I, uh, I, I don't, um, not having expertise in this area and not having been here myself, I'm not so familiar with the trajectory of some of the, the conflicts and the issues that have gone on. But I have seen recently a number of headlines about violence uh, among the Kuki, which I believe is a, a Naga tribe in, in India. And uh, th- this is also an opportunity to learn a little bit more about um, what's what exactly is happening with that, as well as anything that you yeah. might know in terms of how the Naga territories have been affected in the last two and a half years since the military coup. Yes, it's a very interesting um, question. I, I have to say, I think the political structures and arrangements in um, in India are m- much more stable than they are in um, Myanmar. Mm-hmm. To the extent that, you know, democracy is a really vibrant thing in India, and I think you know we 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 can easily dismiss what's going on in India um, uh, without really understanding that actually it's democracy at its noisiest and most vibrant. Mm. And I, I'm I'm relatively positive about. Um, domestic uh, activity in in, in uh, India in a way that I'm not with Burma because of course Burma is a military dictatorship uh, and, and military dictatorships uh, always survive by concentrating power in the hands of a very small number of people and it's Bamar, sadly Bamar dominated Tatmadaw. Um, but what we see in, in Imphal and Manipur at the moment is a traditional, uh, is a, is a um, revitalizing of a traditional um, animosity between two tribes, the Kuki and the Maitai. And the Maitai are the people who live around the southern side of Loktak Lake and Imphal, uh, and the Kuki who live in the hills towards the east. And a lot of tension, domestic tension in India is, dare I say, a tribal. Um, uh, and there has been a long animosity between these tribes, but you know, I, I would also suggest that you know, long periods of um, democratic government in uh, in India has enabled the, the tribes to get on well with each other. Every now and again, um, there are explosions of, of, of um, rage and violence that I think and hope and trust that the um, that, that India are, are managing. And I think all the evidence that I've got from friends who live in Kahima and Imphal at the moment is that's the case. Um, Interestingly enough, there was a very long insurgency, largely now over, between Naga nationalists against the Indians who, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the nationalist noise is still strong, but the violence is largely over. But that went on really from the end of the war until mm-hmm. very, very recently, uh, certainly uh, recent times when I've been there. So I think that what always whatever always dominates in these environments and we know this in britain with uh, the, the experience in northern ireland is the power of democracy so mm-hmm. democracy allows people to give vent to views and opinions and to to shape them and frame them in a in a constrained and 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 positive way 
Uh, and that's why, you know, all societies have noisy protests and differences of opinions and views. And so mm, long yeah. as the structures of political discourse enable those conversations to take place, you, you have peaceful outcomes, which is why I'm confident that um, that the issue in, our, in, in Imphal, I hope to be there in a few months' time, mm-hmm. will be resolved. Uh, because I know that these people do talk uh, talk with each other and they do so very animatedly. Um, and that's not the case in Myanmar, sadly. And mm-hmm. I think this is the real challenge for, for, for the West and it's a challenge for Myanmar because so long as you attempt to control and constrain the people of the country who don't want to be controlled or constrained, um, then you're going to have challenge and you're going mm-hmm. to have um, the use of force. And there is, I, I can't see it being a historian, I can't see any alternative to, to continuing war, the point that I made earlier. You either have continuous peace and you need to work out the structures and systems of delivering it. Democracy is a very good way, as Winston Churchill said, it's the best way apart from all the others. Uh, it's, it's a very good way of systematizing peace. Um, and I would, dare I say it, I'd suggest that capitalism is an important part of that. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. in um, you know where, where you have structures of power that uh, aren't democratic, you have different sorts of problems. Now, that's not to say that you know, democracies are the only peaceful societies we know. In fact, that's just not the case. And um, mm-hmm. from Western experience in Europe from 2011 over the uh, 2011 onwards, the um, the Arab Spring, uh, forcefully introducing uh, national democracy on tribal relationships and entities and, and so on is, is always a bit of a disaster. I think the West has got its hands very badly burnt in trying and in, in thinking too um, simplistically about the, the power of democracy, which takes us back to Myanmar. If you're going to be a, uh, apply democracy successfully in Myanmar, you need to do what Aung San believed was necessary, which was to uh, involve all of the peoples of the of the hill tribes in the Myanmar together in very intimate ways, bottom up, top down. You know, we need systems of structure and governance that don't automatically create political parties that are tribal based. As soon as mm-hmm. that happens, you've got significant problems. And I'm uh, I'm definitely not a communist, uh, uh, but one of the things that communism used to do was to cut across those tribal uh, boundaries to create a, a new sense of identity. Um, now they not always have worked and we know what happened in former Yugoslavia when uh, when Tito died and his his form of um, collectivization uh, died with him the, the the tribal entities of the people of the of the uh, Balkans reasserted themselves but that I, I'm not I'm not a pessimist about Myanmar mm-hmm. it, it, it's a, but it's a very significant challenge and if the West can help it's to understand Myanmar better and my sadness over many years is to see how actually the West doesn't understand sure, Myanmar. Sure. West has failed to understand Aung San Suu Kyi. They've mm-hmm. failed to understand uh, the nationalist drivers in in, uh, in national polity. And they've failed to understand actually the endless cycles of civil war that began with the Japanese invasion. So it's, it's it, you know, it might look insurmountable, no problems in in, in, in history, in my view, are insurmountable, but it's going to take an enormous amount, not least of all, the ending of military dictatorship in, in Myanmar. Mm. And do you know anything about how Naga people have been impacted or involved in the last two and a half years with the coup and the resistance movement? Um, not, not that I can say uh, publicly, um, mm-hmm. I'm afraid, but uh, you know, 
suffice it to say that you know the whatever happens in Myanmar has cross-border implications sure. for, the, for the tribes, and I think that that's very clear. I think what's also very clear that there's, there's still very very close dialogue amongst the tribes on on both sides of the border, mm-hmm. and um, and that's very powerful. And I can see it and hear it, you know, when I'm whenever I'm there. So those those borders are largely artificial. The the tribal entities and identities. And relationships are still are still very 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 close, and of course, uh, that works well for relationships between the Indian government and and uh, and Myanmar. But you know it has uh, it has detrimental effects as well. You know it's it's a very very difficult set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been interesting just that so many Chin refugees have been finding some kind of safe haven in Mizoram. And that was addressed by one guest we had on a recent podcast that was actually explaining it as kind of a, a, a function of the Indian type of democracy that you had Modi, who was the prime minister of India, quite cozying up with, with, with the junta and, and, um, and meeting the current regime, um, not being very friendly to the democracy movement in Burma or the, the dissidents who were needing to find a safe refuge. But then you had a local government in the way this guest explained it, you had a local government in Mizoram that was able to enact their own policies despite Modi's less than friendly um, response to, um, uh, to to the current resistance movement. And so Mizoram has, has very much been a, a place where many Chins and other refugees have been finding some kind of refuge from all the violence that's been taking place. Yes, that, that's exactly right. It's... Um... You know, so Modi and the Indian government have got a tightrope to walk. Frankly, you know, you, mm-hmm. what you need to be able to do is to is to maintain peace on the border, uh, and you need to be able to maintain peace with an important neighbour, even though you might not agree with the the structures of political um, organisation in that country. That's none of your business, frankly. And Modi's a you know a pragmatist, and he understands that he's surrounded on all sides by countries with different political structures, and and Myanmar's no different to Pakistan or China. Or, or Afghanistan, so he's got that to deal with. But he's got to be able to make sure that the um, the, the refugee chins, I mean, he's got this problem with Rohingya as well, mm-hmm. are, 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 are are managed um, in a um, in a in a humanitarian way. But yes, that's one one dimension. But also in a way that preserves the the tribal identities uh, of very significant parts of his own population. And the, the last thing he would want, of course, is, for instance, with the Nagas, is for anything to upset the, um, the increasingly settled state of Naga politics mm-hmm. um, with this move away to, from nationalism to uh, a sense of the need for integration between wider India and Nagaland. And mm-hmm. that's, been, that's been Modi's policy for a very long time. And I was in, back in Nagaland in, in February, and I could see that very clearly. Um, it, it's it's a real problem, and I, I have to say that you know further instability uh, in Myanmar, you know, caused by the Tatmadaw, is you know is undermining and threatening the stability of a whole series of very fragile relationships, both tribal and and international. Hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for this. It's been really a pleasure chatting with you about uh, having using the the book as a focus, but then going off in all these different tangents of different historical perspectives as well as the implications in modern day. So I really enjoyed it and encourage listeners to check out your books. You have a range of books about World War II, about the Burma Front in World War II, and the one we discussed today again was Among the Headhunters. There will be a link in the show notes for that and definitely encourage listeners to check that out to be able to delve a bit deeper into some of the things that we talk about. And thank you so much for your time here. Oh, Joe, it's been an amazing privilege for me to talk about um, Mm one of the subjects closest to my heart. So thank you very much for the opportunity. We'd like to take this time to thank our generous supporters who have already given. We simply could not continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support of generous donors, listeners, and friends like you. Each episode helps in providing access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more insight. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated and helps us continue this mission. We greatly appreciate your generosity, which allows us to maintain this platform. Thank you. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's alokacrafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.
Oh, ba, yara nanda, da, yara nanda, 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 y